Hey, this is Jody Crane, Chief Medical Officer for Team Health. Um, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. John Sullivan, the Facility Medical Director for St. Alexius in Chicago, Illinois, who had the second case of coronavirus in the United States. So, John, thanks so much for joining me on the call this evening. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and uh, I'd love to hear kind of how it all went down. So, um, so tell me about the case and tell me about how how your facility responded and the, we'll kind of walk through it together. So we had a patient that presented to a local PCP's office uh, with symptoms of lower respiratory tract infection. She had a fever, she had a cough, and she had just traveled from Wuhan City. So when the patient was at the primary care doc's office, they were suspecting coronavirus. So they masked the patient. They gave the ER a call that they were sending her in. The ER staff met her outside the triage door and basically walked her right back to a private room so she wouldn't have to spend any time in the waiting room. And then once in the room, we did a sepsis workup, chest x-ray, and then uh, the vials of blood that had to be sent to the CDC to check for coronavirus. And subsequently, the patient did end up uh, being positive. John, when you say you, you met uh, you met the patient at the front door and you put her back in the room, what kind of staff were interacting with her at that point, like right off the bat? And I know there was scribes and probably nurses, techs. It's kind of like regular routine care, right? That's correct. That's correct. Um, because we knew what we had coming in, we didn't want the patient sitting in the waiting room for any period of time, potentially exposing people. Um, we were following droplet precaution at that time, and so... It was a tech that met the patients. The triage nurse was out there, too, and they had a room already assigned, so they walked her directly back to that room. The staff that met her, you know, had gloves and a mask on, but they didn't have a face shield. It was not an N95 mask, and uh, there were no other precautions taken. And so what happened after that? <clears throat> so she went back to the room. She got a workup. She had a viral pneumonia. The patient was very stable. Uh, bottles were fine. Uh, pulse oximetry was normal. And the decision was made to admit her, uh, mostly for the purpose of isolating the patient. Um, and she got admitted upstairs. Um, CDC was obviously notified. They showed up the next day uh, with a team, as well as uh, some folks from Illinois Department of Public Health. And uh, those people uh, were on site for probably about 10, 10 to 12 days. It was really a fluid process because as we went through this, it felt like they were actually writing policy for the country um, from a basement of our hospital in our conference rooms. Um, so there was a lot of lot of meetings and updating, you know, how we were going to handle uh, the PUIs, uh, people under investigation. Because initially one of the, the issues was we had placed the patient in droplet precaution, but about three days into this, they upgraded it to respiratory isolation. So the patient had to go to a negative pressure room Subsequently, everybody who had interacted with that patient without full PPE, N95, masked with face shield, in a negative pressure room was now considered exposed. And that created some... Um, days later. And that was, was three, three, days, three days later, that's correct. And were these people still working clinically and all of that, or were they home with their families? Like They were still working clinically. They were still home with their families. And... Uh, Pretty much most of them, in fact, all of them were asymptomatic at that point in time. Really interesting. Yeah, that's that's when it got really, really interesting because now they became 
person's under investigation. And so we pretty much had to furlough staff. I think we reached a maximum of, of 60 uh, nurses on furlough, and they had to be monitored for 14 days from the time of their contact with this patient to see if they develop fever, cough, sore throat, or shortness of breath. Um, and if they developed any of those symptoms, then they had to come in and they had to get screened for coronavirus as well. Wow, so most, 60 nurses. Um, yeah. Uh, other staff too, like techs? Yep, techs, security guards, uh, some x-ray staff that had done the initial film on the patients. Um, they were all involved as well. And uh, they were, most of them were stable, so they were all allowed to self-quarantine at home as long as they could isolate from family members. And that was kind of the condition of it. Wow. So what impact did that have on the rest of your department? So you, all of a sudden you have all these people that can't work. You have a dock out. Did you, were you able to fill your shifts? Yeah, we, we were able to, to backfill the shifts for the dock because there was one, only one exposure from the docks. Um, the nursing hurt us a lot more because we were already working a little bit short to begin with. Um, and then upstairs, you know, we had to close a couple of units on the floor just because there weren't enough nurses to uh, care for the patients. So that definitely became a bit of a throughput challenge. The ER ended up holding a lot more patients than we had we had planned. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the staff worked through it, and nursing and our CEO were tremendously supportive. In fact, our CEO must have been there the first 72 hours around the clock running a command center out of one of our conference rooms where we had HR there, you know, we had infection control, our chief of micro was there, pathology was there. It was really an incredible number of people that were all part of a team effort just trying to get their arms around, you know, first of all, the, the patient with the novel coronavirus, but second of all, all the potential exposures of the staff, because that required tremendous efforts to track them. Uh, Illinois Department of Public Health would send an email questionnaire twice a day asking if they had fever, if they had cough, and, and the Department of Public Health was instrumental in kind of monitoring these patients. We certainly didn't have the staff to do it, but it was a, a very intensive effort to do a day-by-day -day monitoring of every PUI that was exposed for 14 days, and then after 14 days, they were considered cleared if they didn't develop any symptoms. Wow, and how about uh, decontamination of the ED and the waiting room and all the places the patient spent time in the hospital? Like, how did they address that? So once once a, a patient uh, that was under investigation was in one of our negative pressure rooms, after they left, the room would have to be left vacant for a minimum of two hours, and then it was basically clean with a bleach solution. So that's uh, that's what they were doing to you know, to sterilize the rooms, and they felt that would be sufficient. And in terms of the, the waiting room, um, I imagine the patient did actually walk through the waiting room, but the patient had a mask on and was, and like you said, was put directly in a room. So no issues with trying to track people down who were in the waiting room or anything like that? No, they actually did make efforts uh, to try and track down everybody that was in the waiting room at the time that our, our patient came through. So it was a pretty expansive effort, and we couldn't have done it if we didn't have the resources of Illinois Department of Public Health and, and the CDC with us because they were able to really take on a lot of the light work. But that was, you know, that was quite a large task because the waiting room was packed when that patient walked through. Now, the guidance has changed somewhat over time, and now they're saying if you were in close contact with a patient that's been infected, you know, you're at higher risk as opposed to if you just walk by somebody in the hallway. But again, there were so many unknowns, and, and there still are, 
about this particular virus, um, I think they were being as cautious as possible because they didn't know if they had the, the next epidemic on their hands. Yeah, it was, you know, really, really early on. And do you remember the date, like when all this kind of went down on the first day? I'd have to think about that, but it was about about three and a half weeks ago. I can't tell you the okay, so, so date offhand. Essentially, everybody's gone through quarantine, and you haven't had anybody convert positive. Well, it's interesting because that kind of got dragged out longer than we would have liked because the patient's husband subsequently came down with symptoms about a week later, and then he was also admitted as well. So uh, you can have a, you know, a double whammy. Exactly, exactly. It was, uh, he actually had been to his cardiologist's office and potentially exposed 26 people there. So, and then they had to track, you know, people. He'd still been going to work. Um, so they had to uh, contact his work and screen people there. Fortunately, none of the PUIs have tested positive for coronavirus. I think the initial, one of the initial unknowns was whether an asymptomatic patient could transmit the virus. I think the feeling was you were probably only able to transmit it if you were symptomatic, but that was kind of one of the unknowns, whether you could shed it asymptomatically. I think there was a case out of China where there was a small cluster of cases in a family, but um, but I don't think they have that answer yet. Yeah, I, uh, I totally agree with you. We're still kind of in the dark on when you can actually start spreading it to other, to other people. It's, it seems like there's this three-headed monster, so to speak. You got the CDC, you got the local health department, and then you got the uh, your facility leadership all on site, round the clock. I imagine you're pretty busy as the FMD. What were the interactions like? Like, who were they meeting with, and um, who was providing the direction and ultimate decision making and all of that? Because I think I think a lot of FMDs across the country, if this happens in their facility, they're going to be dealing with it uh, similarly. And 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 if if you have tips uh, for them on how to kind of navigate this thing, it would be really helpful. Well, our case probably is a little bit unique because CDC was on site for such a long period of time, and they pretty much take control of all the processes. So it's certainly in conjunction with our hospital leadership, our CEO, our COO, chief nursing officer, and then all the directors of the different departments, as well as the medical directors. So it was a collaborative effort, but CDC drives the bus, and they're pretty much writing policy that you're expected to follow um, because they're the ones that are, you know, out front trying to contain this, and they're, you know, trying to to be as as proactive as possible with something that they don't fully understand yet. Did, did they ever did they ever say something or kind of say, hey, well, you should do this, and you were thinking in your head, well, that's kind of crazy, you like, that doesn't make any sense. Or were those kind of conversations going on where you had some, you know, enlightened docs, maybe your infectious disease guys, and and was there this kind of collaboration back and forth, or was it pretty much you guys just waiting to hear what the CDC said, and they said do it, and you guys did it? No, our, our physician that was uh, in charge of infection control, you know, felt like, there were some opportunities where things could have been done better. And probably the most glaring example would be that all these healthcare workers that had come in very brief and casual contact with the patient initially were suddenly made, you know, persons under investigation, which required them to be off, to be quarantined, to check their temperature twice a day, 
check in twice a day with the Illinois Department of Public Health, I would say that they were extremely cautious with protecting healthcare workers, you know, which, you know, if things had gone the other way and it was a highly contagious virus, that would have been fantastic. Um, fortunately, so far, it hasn't proven to be tremendously contagious among healthcare workers. Now, the, you know, the CDC's gone now. You've kind of gotten through this initial, this initial kind of wave at your facility. So if the next person kind of walks through the door, like, how would you treat that one? Would you kind of go full bore like the CDC recommended on the first round? Or or uh, did, were you kind of left with the idea that, you know, the droplet precautions and the face mask and um, gloves are uh, sufficient or, or kind of full court press with negative pressure isolation, all that stuff? Yeah, I think we're still, I think we're still going to follow full court press with respiratory isolation in a negative pressure room. Um, staff will be in full PPE, which is going to be gown, gloves, N95 mask, and a face shield. And then, uh, you know, I think that's probably going to be the safest route to go because the last thing anybody wants is, uh, you know, one of our healthcare workers to become seriously ill from this virus. I think there's still a lot we don't understand, and it, it currently is contained in the United States. But look at what's happening in China. I mean, that that could they could break out in the U.S. as well. So I think we're going to probably continue to be as cautious as possible until we have more information on this. So, so your recommendation for other uh, other emergency departments that kind of come down with this is is follow as strict isolation as you can with negative pressure, like you said, gowns, glove, uh, N95, face shield, and then um, assuming all of the staff members do that, then then no one should be subjected to quarantine because uh, they'll they'll be adequately adequately protected uh, from the virus. That's correct. That's correct. And the only people that we had to quarantine after we instituted full PPE and respiratory isolation were people that had some breach of the protocol, which was very few, just a, a couple here and there. But if there was a breach in the full PPE protocol, then that person would be furloughed and quarantined for a period of 14 days. We felt that the, the respiratory isolation and the PPE were sufficiently protective of the staff. Okay, I'm gonna put you on, a, on the spot for a couple more questions that I know uh, people, uh, people will be wanting to ask. So one is, you know, kind of knowing what you know, would you do any outreach to your community physicians in terms of how to proactively either prepare patients to come in, like uh, I mean, I think it's really amazing that that PCP um, had the foresight to put the mask on the patient. Um, but but would you even go so far to designate? Let's say you're running three hospitals. Would you designate one as the referral uh, center for any suspected coronavirus so you can limit the spread? Uh, would you do an outreach program to all the PCPs to say, hey, if you suspect anybody, give us a call first? What would your recommendations be there? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and actually it would be all of the above. So we're part of a 19-hospital system, and because St. Alexis had, had two cases, we were kind of designated as the coronavirus hospital. So if anybody needed admission, they were going to be directed to St. Alexius because we didn't want to start contaminating the other hospitals. Um, so that's the first thing that we implemented within the health system. And then we also educated the physicians on staff in the community. 
because the last thing we wanted is everybody with a cough or a fever getting sent to the ER to get screened for coronavirus because, uh, first of all, the only place you could get screened was uh, from the CDC in Atlanta, and they were only screening the high-risk cases. They didn't, you know, have enough testing to, to be able to do everybody who walked in with a cough. So um, as a result of that, we tried to make sure that the physicians in their offices utilize the tool that's now on the CDC website for screening patients. And initially, the criteria was, you know, do you have fever, cough, sore throat, or shortness of breath? And have you been to Wuhan City? Now, since then, our health system has expanded that a little bit more into, you know, have you been um, in China? Um, so it's a little bit of a wider net. But all the original cases were coming out of Wuhan City. So that was the, the screening tool we had rolled out to the physician practices as well. Oh, that's great. And um, so that I think that's really, really important is just education, ed, educating your primary care doctors in the community what to do because it's kind of, you know, knee-jerk, oh, my gosh, let's send them to the ER. Well, if they just have a cough but they otherwise look pretty good, you're, you're essentially uh, subjecting the receiving hospital uh, to, you know, potentially full spread of the virus, especially if you don't give them a heads up and especially if you don't, uh, you know, uh, at least put a mask on the patient, um, but you know you could argue if they're if they're well, you know, and they just came from home, send them back home and figure it out, right? That's correct. That's correct. Self quarantine at home, and and like we talked about earlier, the the key was that in educating our our medical staff, if they have a patient that they felt was high risk, you know, they should immediately mask them, but then call the ER so we're prepared. So that patient doesn't come and sit in the waiting room. We can literally meet them outside, walk them right to a negative pressure room, and, and quarantine them in our ED that way. Great. All right. The next big question is, what would you recommend to either frontline docs, nurses, or uh, medical directors who find themselves, you know, in this tangled web of you know, the infectious disease or, um, or the health department, local health department and, and other folks and the hospital in the midst of this, like, what would your recommendation be to an FMD if they called you up and said, hey, we had a suspected case of, of coronavirus and I've got all these people around? What would you tell that person having just been through all of this? Well, for us, we initially didn't have much to go on. It was it was kind of, you know, being created as we went along. Now, if you go to the CDC website, you can pull off the screening tools. You can pull off all the resources of what they're recommending, as well as, as how to contact them. So I think what you would do is, first of all, you have to have a plan ahead of time. You can't, you can't figure it out after someone shows up. So you have to have a plan that you've edu educated medical staff on about how you're going to deal with PPE and respiratory isolation. You have to make sure your respiratory isolation rooms are functional, um, and, and it has to be a hospital-wide plan for how you're going to deal with a suspected patient. So that would be the first thing. Make sure you've got a plan before that first patient shows up. And then the second thing is, is as soon as you have a, a suspected case or high-risk case, um, get on the phone to the CDC. Uh, they were tremendously helpful. I think uh, they're gaining uh, knowledge on this virus exponentially, and, and they're going to pretty much walk you through what they want you to do in terms of blood specimens and screening and, and then also um, 
you know, help you with, you know, whether someone should be quarantined in the hospital or whether they can self-quarantine at home and, you know, walk you through all the PUIs and how to, how to screen those as well. That's great. And do you think there's any value? So we have, you know, our special ops team, we have a hit team. We also have DNY who is a, you know, national locums company. And, and we, we all met last week to say, Hey, how, how can we help, you know, places like uh, St. Alexius and, and others who might have a doc who is quarantined or, or heaven forbid, multiple cases. Uh, do you think there's sort of value in, in, in having that back up on the physician side, knowing that, as you alluded to, you know, the big dent was in the nursing side and you had multiple nurses furloughed and a couple couple rooms closed. Do you, do you think, uh, in, I'm, I know I'm asking about the crystal ball here, but do you, do you think there would be some value in that moving forward or do you think pretty much it's going to, going to knock out multi multiple systems and and you know when that case does come in it's going to kind of equally impact all the different um, uh, resources in the hospital no I think it's I think it's a valid concern especially if you don't know that you're getting a case before you get it and you haven't had time you know to prepare a room or to prepare PPE and actually be ready for it so you're potentially going to expose a lot of staff and and the staff is not going to be allowed to work if, if they're considered a high-risk exposure uh, to coronavirus. So, you know, are we going to see this, this uh, you know, outbreak grow in the United States? Or, you know, have measures been taken that sufficiently contain it to China? It's hard to say. Right now, there's, there's so few cases, it's probably hard to make a case for, for having an all-out effort in terms of, know having the hit team show up but you know we don't know where it's going yet so time's going to kind of give us that answer yeah that's um well I, I really appreciate your insight and so it sounds like your your main message having just walked through this is preparation is kind of everything right it's knowing how to protect yourself and having the um all, everything you need literally prepared and ready to go for when that potential case comes through the door. And again, I know we've talked about this a couple times, but it's face shield, N95 mask, gloves, gown, negative pressure, right? And um, it's everyone with PPE, not just the doc, um, but, but everybody who comes in contact with the patient. And then it's also about reaching out to your, your local uh, primary care physicians and giving them a heads up on what they should do if they identify a case in their office and, um, and making sure that everyone's prepared and most importantly, throw a mask on the patient, give you a call so that, uh, so that uh, you know that the patient's coming. So there's patients not hanging out in the waiting room waiting to sign in. And then it's um, when possible, designate a receiving facility so that, you know, five hospitals don't get contaminated all at the same time, but it's one who's really prepared to receive the patient gets the patient, they know how to handle them, and, uh, and life goes on. Um, anything I missed there? I know it's been a really great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time out after 8 o'clock here, uh, actually um, 7.30 your time, but um, this has been an invaluable conversation. I know it's going to help other FMDs across the nation. 
think that's a, a really great summary of what we did. And, you know, people can learn from, from uh, our experience in that uh, we had most exposures because we had changed the isolation protocol kind of a couple of days into having this patient. And once we got to full PPE and respiratory isolation, then there were no more exposures of staff. Um, so then we felt pretty good about what we were doing. So I think the full PPE, negative pressure room, and having advanced warning um, by notifying your, your community of, of docs that if they're going to send someone in, give, them a, give you a heads up so you can meet them at the door and walk them right back. Um, and that uh, limits any potential exposures. So Dr. John Sullivan from St. Alexius in Chicago, uh, sharing his experiences with the second case identified of coronavirus in the United States. John, thank you so much. Um, you don't know how much you've helped um, everybody uh, who could potentially face it. So thanks, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you.